Last week, if you were here, we looked at 2 Thessalonians 2, which is one of the great prophecy chapters in the Bible, and I got great responses. I had some people say, man, that was great. That was really good. I like the way you… I had some people say, I don't think you helped anyone. You really confused the matter. My favorite response, though, was one of our members on Wednesday morning with the men said, do I have to remember all that stuff to get into heaven? <laughs> because I don't think I can keep up with that. I've learned a lot, but if I've got to remember all that to get into heaven, I'm in trouble. Um, I said, no, we get into heaven solely by trusting in Jesus' death on the cross to give us life where we were dead. Don't have to remember all this to get into heaven. You may get a little bigger room, but, you know, I just, no, seriously. It, it's, I, the, the whole issue of prophecy is one that can, that can befuddle us, to say the least. I hope it was beneficial to you. Many believe that this book was written, 2 Thessalonians was written because... Uh, the, the Thessalonian believers had heard about the return of Christ and therefore said, if Jesus is coming, let's just quit work, work and wait. And, and therefore, that's why in chapter 3, where we'll be today, the, uh, Paul addresses the whole issue of idleness because they were sitting and reading their prophecy charts and waiting for the Lord's return. And um, I personally don't believe that for what it's worth, because two different times in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul says, you know, get busy, work with your hands, don't be idle. I think it was a problem already in the Thessalonian church. I don't think prophecy is the reason for it, personally. I think it, they may have used the prophecy issue as an excuse for their idleness, but I, I think there was an overriding issue there. And at the end of chapter 2, Verses 16 and 17, he gets to what he's trying to accomplish. He says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your heart and strengthen you in every good deed and word. In other words, he's saying, I I'm, I'm praying that God will give you the encouragement you need to keep doing what you need to do. And that's why I believe that chapter 3, verse 13 is the crucial verse in many ways of the whole book. Don't get tired of doing what's right. Don't grow weary of doing good. Because the, the, the secret we don't want to admit in the church is, is many followers of Christ over time get tired and grow discouraged. And, and, and they lose that, that energy they had, that passion they had in obeying Christ. I was sitting with a young man the other day and said, every area of your life, you're a house of fire. Everything you do, you, you knock down walls, you, you overcome anything. You're, you are a force to be reckoned with, except in the area of your faith. And when it comes to your faith, you're kind of halfway. Why is that? Why, why would it be that way? And after talking a while, he talked about discouragement he'd seen. He'd seen him... In the body of Christ where people he loved had been hurt and that he'd grown disillusioned by the injustices he'd experienced. That's why I believe in, in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is actually addressing the fact that we can grow weary when we see the injustices of life, when the bad guy seems to keep winning, when even in the body of Christ, it just seems like things aren't fair. Because you and I both know they're not. 
that oftentimes in life, including in the body of Christ, you'll see things you may have come into encounter with a, a pastor who had a big name, and you find out he may have a big name, but he's a little guy. You, you may have experienced something in a church where you became disillusioned with the way people acted. You, you, you may be discouraged because of the way Christians are behaving in the public forum. There are all kinds of ways that we can grow discouraged with the injustices we see in the body of Christ. And what often happens is we don't stand up and say, I'm doing away with Jesus. We just kind of drift into neutral. And, and, and there's a lot of that in the body of Christ in America today. You know, we don't, we don't have that joy or, or fierce desire to serve him. We're, we, we go to church, we pray, we read a devotional even. But our lives don't match up with the message. The message says that apart from believing in Christ, you're eternally separated from God, that He is the reason we were made, and He gave us His Son to reorient us so that we could experience in life what we were designed to experience, and that He made us alive, He informs all of life. In other words, when you read what the gospel says, it's not something you should be blasé about if you claim to believe it, and yet many of us in America are blasé. What the book of Revelation and the letter to Laodicea calls lukewarm. Just kind of because it's discouraging. And then in chapter 2, he, the apostle goes off in the whole description of the day of the Lord because there had been a rumor that the day of the Lord had already occurred. And, and there are different opinions, like I said. Some believe that many had said, well, the Lord's already come, then what's the use? Um, but he, he teaches in chapter 2 to explain God's plan for the last days and that in the last days there will be the lawless one who will bring, God will use to bring judgment on a broken world. And when you read about the judgments in Revelation and other passages of Scripture, you realize just how much God hates sin. Um, in fact, sometimes we, as an aside, we, we get all discouraged with the injustices and say, God, why don't you hate these injustices as much as I do? In reality, read his judgments. He hates the injustices much more than we do. And he will bring justice. But for now, he gives mercy so that we can have a chance to know him. According to Scripture, God had a right to wipe us out from the beginning because we betrayed him, right? It is his mercy and grace that gives us this time, this chance to come to know Him. But there will be a day, the day of the Lord, which is what Scripture refers to that time of justice and when, when the lawless one will be revealed. But then in the end of chapter 2, he says, I want to encourage you so that you'll keep doing what's right. In chapter 3, he'll land the plane. He'll, he'll address the, that essential issue that he's coming to. So if you will, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's after 1 Thessalonians. Prefer 1 Timothy. He begins by reminding them about what we're here for. He does it in the context of a prayer. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. Pray for us that we'll do our job. 
What is the job of the church? What is, what is it that we are here to do? The job of the church is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the earth. The job of the church is to tell people about Jesus, right? By both our words and our lives to proclaim who Jesus is to a broken and dying world. So in the midst of this discussion about growing weary, Paul says, oh, by the way, pray for me as I do what we're supposed to be doing. Fundamentally, you know how groups of people, or for that matter, individuals, grow weary? How, how groups can fall apart and lose their effectiveness? Whether it's a company or a social club or a church or even a family. You know, you know what the key is that when we lose effectiveness? We forget what our purpose is. When we forget what our purpose is. I spent a number of years of my life working in higher education. You know one of the great threats of higher education? They forget that the students are actually important, right? In higher education, it's been written about. This is not a slam. It's a tendency that can occur in universities where the students are viewed as a necessary evil, and the university is there to keep the faculty in jobs, right? What happens then? Well, the students get short shrift. The whole thing craves, it clashes down on itself. It stops being effective because they've forgotten what their purpose is. The Apostle Paul is speaking to a church and says, what are we here for? We're here to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. He says, pray that it will be out, given out effectively like it was for you, that it will be received and be honored because that's what we're here for. Has the body of Christ forgotten that? Sometimes. Have we as individuals forgotten that? Sometimes. Paul says, pray for me that the message of the Lord will be spreading rapidly and be honored as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. Pray that God will take away those barriers to this proclamation. The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. By the way, the Apostle Paul clearly had read the Psalms a few times. If you become a student of the Psalms, you'll find that in the first, especially a certain type of the Psalms, in the first few lines or verses, there'll be a complaint. Like the one I read to you earlier, Lord, where are you? Yo, Lord, I'm praying here. Where are you? In other words, the Psalms begin with kind of embarrassing honesty oftentimes. Oftentimes, the psalmist will, will complain about his frustration with God and, and, and say, Lord, where are you? But then he always comes back to a reminder of who God is and what God has promised. What does Paul do here? Pray that the Lord will protect me from the evil men so that, and, and you almost say, uh-oh, Paul's getting worried about the opposition. But then where does he land? God's faithful. God's faithful. See, when, when we focus on the opposition, when we focus on the opposition, all looks lost. 
When we focus on the Lord, there is always hope. When we focus on the opposition, all is lost. When we focus on the Lord, there is always hope. A number of years ago, back when I taught an adult class here, probably the only thing I was ever qualified to do, and um, there was a couple in there, and, and she got all worried about the devil, and which I get it. He's a bad guy. I know that much. And, and, and every lesson, we, she wanted to talk about the devil. And, and what about the devil? That, what about Satan this? And, and I finally said, my problem is not that I disagree with anything you believe about Satan. But I don't think we're supposed to focus on him. Because the more I think about him, the more I lose hope in the one who gives hope. And Paul begins with that acknowledgement of the, the evil that we face, but then he comes back to God's faithfulness. And so we have confidence, verse 4, in the Lord that you're doing and will continue to do things we command. So may the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. May God continue to work in you. Verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle. Now, that word is a difficult word. In the context, the NIV and other translations take it to be idle, not working. A better translation might be insolent, disorderly. And some translations call it disorderly. Let me tell you what it is. I I read for a while on what this word means, and you know what kept coming to mind? Passive-aggressive. It's that that person who rebels by not doing something. You ever met someone like that? It's not that they actively get in your face to argue with you. They just kind of dig in and don't move. That better fits what the word means. Uh, there, there were those who opposed the Apostle Paul, and, and he will later on call them busybodies. Because in their opposition, they, they, their passivity had caused them uh, not to go, be active doing the things they were supposed to do. Instead, they were out telling everybody else what they should be doing. In fact, keep reading about it, and I, I think you may recognize some of these folks. Um, Keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. See the rebellion there against what they know to be right? These aren't just people that have low energy. These are people who are choosing to be idle. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right for such help, but in order to make ourselves for a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we got, gave you this rule, if a man not work, he shall not eat. He, and, and this is why it's often translated idle, because, because he then says, follow my example, I work like crazy. I, I work night and day. Now, we know from the other passages of Scripture what Paul means by that. He had two jobs. We call them tent makers even today because Paul's night job was making tents. He had a career making tents. Um, he, he, he supported himself financially uh, by making tents because tents were a big deal then, right? 
And then his day job, if you will, was proclaiming the gospel wherever he went. And he went from city to city where there were no followers of Christ, would march into the Jewish synagogue, proclaim the gospel, lead people to Christ, and create a church. Did that everywhere he went. But Paul's making the point here that every time he did it, he did it on, on his own nickel. Every time he went to a new place, because it's awkward to go say, I want you to follow Jesus, now give me money. It would have hurt the effectiveness of his ministry if he'd had his hand out. And it's an issue that the Apostle Paul talks about repeatedly in the New Testament, how the workman is worthy of his honor. This is the way I understand it. In the body of Christ, all of us are called to do ministry. Every one of us has a giftedness and a calling that we're we should be doing. And a few of us, by the grace and mercy of God, have the privilege of being paid to do it. But that's, that's just a privilege. All of us are called, and if the body of Christ ever wants to take away that privilege, they have a right to do it. But Paul says, I, I had a right to be paid. Peter and the other apostles were paid. I chose not to because of the nature of my work, and because I wanted to be, I wanted you to see my life. And what was Paul's life? He made tents. He proclaimed the gospel. Do you notice that Paul doesn't say, I did the nasty work, that secular job, in order that I could do godly work, work that mattered. Notice he treats the, it all as the same. He said, I just worked all the time. Because one of the lies is that only certain things are spiritual and everything else is secular. That, you know, we do our day job, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, nurse or architect or business person or, or teacher or uh, um, housewife, what's the word you can say with that now? I'm too behind the times, but domestic goddess. Um, <laughs> You know, whatever that full-time responsibility is, I do that because I have to in order that a few hours of the day I can actually do what matters. I can serve Jesus. You know, that's not a biblical idea. In Scripture, anything you do for the glory of God is for His honor. Going all the way back to the book of Genesis, God gives humans a job to bring Him glory, and whatever we do in life is a part of that. Uh, all of work is righteous when done for God. All, all of work has value when done for God. Now, some will say, well, of course, you, you got to have a job because then you meet people outside of the church, and the thing that makes your job valuable is that you can tell them about Jesus. That's not scriptural. It is something we should be doing in those jobs. But that's not the only thing that gives our work value. The fact is, that work has value because it's, it's part of what God has assigned us to do. It all has meaning. The Apostle Paul said, I demonstrated that for you. I worked all the time. I could have let you pay me for it, but I didn't. Why? Because I wanted to be an example to you. What's the example? That it's all good. It's all good. Satan wants you to believe that the 40, 50, 60 hours a week you do on your job, if you're that domestic goddess, 120, whatever it is, that stuff doesn't have value, that, that it's meaningless eternally. And many women, that's, that's a lie. 
It's all that we do when done to God's glory has value and meaning. And he accepts it as an offering before him. Um, and what is he contrasting that to? The problem makers were idle. In fact, we know from the context, they weren't making a living. They were eating at everyone else's table. Because in the early church, there was a great deal of communal activity. They ate together a lot, and these guys said, cool, free meals, don't have to work, and just went from table to table and enjoying to live off of other people. And he says, that's, that's not a good thing. Because all that we do has value, and all of it's part of serving Christ. Verse 11, we hear that some of you are idle. They're not busy, they're busybodies. That's actually, an, I, I thought, oh, the NIV translation got real cute. Somebody got real cute. You know, but actually, the Apostle Paul did that in Greek. He has the same kind of wordplay in the original. He really knocks it out of the park with this one. He, he's saying, instead of working, they're working at everybody else. Um, and, and instead of being focused on what they're called to be doing, they're, they're focused on what everyone else should be doing. In, instead of serving the triune God, they're trying to be the Holy Spirit. You know those people? They're, they're, they feel convicted about the sin in your life. You know those people? God has spoken to me, and I feel convicted about the sin in your life. Now, there, there's a place for uh, spiritual discipline. There's a place for speaking to each other in humility and love. But some people get kind of caught up into this trap where they become busybodies. What do they do in the body of Christ? They take the body of Christ away from what we should be talking about. It's easy to do, isn't it? In fact, one of the things I'll hear from people is what, that have gotten disillusioned was, you know, they were at a church, and the, and the church had committees, and, and they got on a committee and finally found out there, there was a war going on over the color of the carpet, you know. Um, I had a friend in seminary whose church in, in Ohio split because the pastor wore a blue shirt with a suit instead of a white shirt that Sunday. Of course, today we're just glad if they wear a shirt, but that different time. Um, uh, in other words, uh, when we get into that, bit, when we take our focus over what we should be doing, what do we fall into? We get busy with things that don't matter. And, and the church can do I can do that. I can worry about how people treat me more than I worry about whether Jesus is honored. I can get focused on whether I'm happy rather than whether Jesus is being made happy. And you know what the best solution for this is? Get busy doing what we're called to be doing. The, the best way not to get caught in this trap is remind ourselves what we're called to do and get busy doing it. The old saw, the idle hands are the devil's workshop is true, except for I would say idle minds are the devil's workshop as well. The Apostle Paul, in the middle of this division that's going on, says, don't be sitting around 
criticizing others. In fact, I think the key verse of the whole book is the end of verse 13. Instead, don't grow weary of doing what you're supposed to be doing. Don't grow tired of doing the right thing. Don't lose energy in getting up each day and doing what you're supposed to do. And the fact of the matter is, sometimes you and I can get alone inside our heads and get caught up in all the injustices and unfairness and everything else around us and and become experts at how everyone else is not living up to what they should be doing. And Satan can use that to pull us away from what we're supposed to be doing, which is what? Be busy doing the right thing. Telling people about Jesus, accepting our responsibilities, and living the life God has called us to live. Because the secret is, when it's done for His glory, it has meaning. Some of you are thinking, how does my job have meaning? Wildman, you don't know my job. My job, I've driven an ice cream truck with a business degree from the University of Texas. Drove around in Garland all day. Came back, sat down in the apartment with the man who owned the truck, and we divided the nickels for an hour. That was exciting. I've done bad. I've dug ditches. I, I've, I've, I've worked in businesses. I've worked in church. I've worked in academia. I want to tell you, it's all the same. Every job is drudgery, right? Some drudgery pays better than others, but every job is drudgery. At the end of the day, what gives it meaning? For the Christian, it's doing it for Jesus that gives it meaning. Because he's the only one that cuts through all the evil and justice and discouragement that we live in, right? The Apostle Paul says, don't grow tired of doing the right thing. Don't, don't let the busybodies pull you away from what matters. And join me in praying that the gospel will go out and that God will use our energies. We hear that some of you are idle and you're not busy. You're busybodies. These people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Do your job. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what's right. Obviously, by the way, this is not intended to say that someone who can't work shouldn't eat. There is a, uh, the Apostle Paul will speak of taking care of widows. He'll take, the, uh, James will speak of caring for widows and orphans. This is, this is a general principle in life. I know I don't need to say this, but just so that that one person who's going to come up to me afterwards and bring it up, I have hereby notified you that I am aware of those scriptures. But the general principle, right, is we just get busy doing what we're called to do and do it for the Lord's glory. Verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of him. Don't associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. But don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 
there is a place for church discipline. And, 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 and there's one level in which it happens on a small level. In other words, it can happen among friends. Uh, you know, we advertise small groups. I'm in multiple small groups because I need more attention than most. Uh, I'm in several men's groups. Julie and I are in a group together. Uh, the staff meets together and pray. I've got more people trying to fix me than any of y'all with limited success, let's be honest. Um, but and, and in that context, there can be a, a form of church discipline, which is to say, hey, man, have you thought about this? In other words, it doesn't have to be, and oftentimes that's the most effective when someone you love says, and I'm not sure you should be acting that way or saying those things. But the Apostle Paul is now moving on to those people who stubbornly resist doing the right thing, and he says, separate from them. Uh, Many scholars believe the point of this here is don't let them take it from the communion table. Um. In the, in the context of the early house church, it would have been easier to demonstrate this kind of thing, whereas in larger churches, obviously, it's more difficult. to. But, but there is a place for making sure that you've given us separation. Why? So they don't infect you. So they don't infect you. Have you ever been around that naysayer at work or in church who infects you? You hear all that negative, and, and before long, it... it changes the way you think as well. It's not only to encourage them to turn back, but it's also to protect you from those folks because of what they can do. Finally, he says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters, and this is how I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So I have a couple of questions. What makes you weary? What in your life has stolen your energy from serving Christ and seeing meaning in all you do? Why do you need encouragement, as Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 2, in your hearts and strength in every good deed and work? Have, Have we lost the energy and desire to get up every morning and say, Lord, use me today and give meaning what I'm called to do. Do we see God's hand in our work at work? And do we see work as an opportunity to demonstrate our love for Him by our faithful service and our being representative of Him in the world? And does that focus on representing him and proclaiming his message give meaning to all of our lives, or have we fallen into a drudgery of meaninglessness and lack of energy? What is it that's stolen your energy and joy? It's a common problem. It's a problem in the church. It's a problem at work. It's a problem at home that that life can just kind of grind you down and survival becomes your primary goal. But Paul would say, Paul would say, you're called to something bigger. We're called to something more meaningful. We we are called to represent the living God in a world that desperately needs to hear. 
We're, we're called to speak to the weary and tell them about a Savior who gives them life. We're, we're called to represent the God of love to a broken world ravaged by hatred. As followers of Christ, we're ambassadors for the King. And yet, so many of us have acted like we've been defeated. Whether you understand prophecy or not, can I summarize for you what the book of Revelation teaches? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And, and if you and I have the privilege of being loved by Him and known by Him and serve Him, we never have a right to lose focus on what He's accomplished and what He will yet do. And it makes no sense for you and me to become so discouraged that we lose hope in our day-to-day life. It means that everything we do has the potential for being meaningful because the sovereign God will use it to accomplish His task, even in ways we don't understand. It means that nothing in life doesn't matter when it's done for the sovereign God who died on the cross for the sins of the world. Don't grow weary and doing the right thing. Don't, don't let the discouragement steal your joy or eradicate the privilege. Instead, get up every morning and see a day as a gift. A gift from God. and An opportunity to serve. And a chance to be used in demonstrating and speaking of what it means to have the meaning of life that comes from knowing our Savior. Don't grow weary of doing the right thing. Let's pray. Father, we confess that life is a beatdown, and we can get discouraged. And sometimes passivity feels like the best solution. Forgive us that we take our eyes off of Jesus and instead focus our eyes on the troubles we have. Forgive us that we look at other people and what they're not doing rather than focusing on what you've called us to do. Forgive us that we've taken you out of every minute of our life. Lord, give us a new enthusiasm, a new joy, a new strength in serving you. In Christ's name, amen.